I am joined my my dear friend Dale Lawner, newly vaccinated Dale. Um, I'm before I even get to uh, introducing Dale, I want to introduce myself. I'm Jennifer Grossman. Uh, I run the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways like animated videos and graphic novels. So for all of you joining us on Zoom, on Facebook, on YouTube, please tee up your questions for Dale. Uh, this is a wonderful opportunity. Of course, if you've been permanently banned from Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, then email me and uh, I'll send you a transcript. Um, anyway, Dale uh, is um, a writer, a producer, a director who got his start in Hollywood when his screenplay for Ruthless People was optioned. Some of his other credits include Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, uh, Blind Date, and uh, perhaps most famously, My Cousin Vinny. Dale is also somewhat of a uh, Renaissance man. He's an art collector. He's been at least various times a fellow Airbnb host. Uh, and he's famous for throwing some of the most intellectually eclectic parties in Los Angeles, bringing together writers, producers, and artists from across the political spectrum, a tradition we badly need in these divided times. Dale, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I want to hear about that very cool room that you're in. Uh, tell us a little bit about your setup. Uh, this is my editing room, and uh, uh, I have adjusted it and tweaked it over the years. Uh, I have, I can see on one of the walls, I think, oops, that one, I've got uh, sort of diamond quilt um, padding, which absorbs sound. Um, I've got these big Ikea lights, hanging lights. Uh, I don't know if they still sell those. Um, there we go. Um, and most I have a very large monitor that I can uh, watch what I'm editing and then two smaller monitors off to the sides, these, so I can see the timeline and my, what they call the bin, which is your different clips. And it's nice and big and you can see it really well. You don't have to squint as you do. Some people um, are proud that they can edit on a laptop, whereas I like, you know, my big monitors. And at one point I had big monitors on the floor. So it looked a little like the bridge of uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Um, but I found myself leaning forward and wanting to still see more. So I finally got them and put them up on the, the table here. Well, so it's, I've got uh, this, this rig is great. It's great. It's great lighting. They just like look like two wings um, on either yeah. side of you. So it looks dramatic. Uh, it looks a little it, uh, clockwork orangey. You know? Yeah, it, it, it does. Um, so Dale, I know, of course, we've known each other for uh, almost 20 years, but tell our audience a little bit about your start in uh, the film business. Um, also, where you grew up. Did you always know that you wanted to be a screenwriter? What, uh, what inspired you? Boy, those are like, that's three different questions here. <laughs> well, uh, tell us a little I'm, bit about I'm not your, sure where your to start. Uh, I was, uh, uh, I, I think my earliest ambition was to design and build race cars. Uh, so it's something I'm still interested in. And then somewhere along the way, I didn't want to be drafted. So I went to college largely to avoid being killed. 
And um, I was a business major briefly, then a religion major. And then I think either a philosophy or psychology major. Um, mostly I just switched my major so I could take the classes I wanted and, and create my own kind of liberal, art, liberal arts major. And then a friend had asked me, what did you do the night before? So I said, I went to a movie. And she said, boy, you go to a lot of movies, of which I felt a little guilty. And then I thought, you know, if I was a film major, I could go to all the movies I want. And not only would I not feel guilty, it would be like study, research, it would be homework. Um, and that's kind of what prompted me to, to change it. And, uh, and once I did, it really felt like a calling. It was something I was, you know, once the floodgates were open, um, I, um, you know, I was just a voracious reader and a voracious watcher of movies. So um, that was really fun. And then what really inspired me was Woody Allen's first movie, Take the Money and Run. Uh, and what inspired me about it is I didn't think it was that good. I didn't think it was that funny. And I thought I could do not just as good. I think I could do better. Um, turns out Woody Allen can do better too. And his movies did progress. Um, uh, but that was sort of a, a, a strange inspiration for me. Um, so uh, there's probably more to the story. What, what's, what's the next question? And I, I'll, I'll uh, well, well to, to talk a little bit, your, your first success as a screenwriter came with, with Ruthless People, is that right? Yes, yeah. And, but was that the first screenplay you'd, you'd written? Um, no, I had probably written uh, almost 10 screenplays at that time. Uh, I still have a stack of them somewhere. Um, and and I, the last time I looked at the stack and there was an entire, I think at least one screenplay I forgot I even wrote, right? Wow. It'd, it'd be fun to read it, you know? But sometimes I some of those and looked at them and thought, um, not bad, you know? It needs a little work, but not bad. Um, what happened is uh, uh, I wrote a number of scripts and then I decided to write a script that would sell. Uh, I was living in Venice. I was living in a fourplex. And one of my neighbors was a reader for MGM. And um, he would get scripts on weekend read, which means they would give him like, like two or three or four scripts to read over the weekend. And a reader does a, a certain kind of formalized book report. And I would go over to his house and I would pick up a script and I could kind of tell from the first page if it was gonna be good or not. I, I could definitely tell if it was gonna be bad. If there was something awkward or clumsy in the first page, it's gonna happen consistently. Uh, then I would read some more pages and you know, and I, I can't say that any of the scripts he ever had on Weekend Read ever hooked me in. Not enough to want to finish them. So then I decided, okay, I'm going to write a script that will be, and, and this was my, my formula, uh, relentlessly entertaining. So when a reader picked it up, I would hook them on the first page. Um, and I would try to continue keeping him hooked you know, that he was not going to get up and get popcorn, right? And certainly, right, if you were watching in the theater, you wouldn't get up and get popcorn. So 
So Ruthless People, the very first page, uh, a character in Sam Stone uh, says that he hates his wife um, and that he would like to murder her or he's planning on murdering her. The second page, you realize he's planning on murdering her today and how he's going to do it. By the end of the third page, he leaves to go murder his wife. Page four, minute four. Um, he's at home. He's got a bottle of chloroform. He's going to knock her out as soon as he finds her. He looks in every room of the house. He can't find her. Page five, he's disappointed, cannot find her. And his phone rings. And the other, uh, the other line, someone says, Sam Stone, listen very carefully. We have kidnapped your wife. And in essence, they say, if you tell the police, we kill her. You tell the media, we kill her. If you deviate from our plans in any way whatsoever, we will kill her. Do you understand? And he says, perfectly. So that's the first five minutes. And I figured that was, that's a, you know, then I was trying to keep it going after that. This is hard to do, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge and it's fun, you know, and it made a very, very entertaining read. Uh, as a result, make a long story short, I ended up uh, getting contacted by some producers who were looking for a project for a specific actress. Actually, it was Sylvia Christel, who was sort of a softcore porn actress in the series of movies called The Emmanuel. And they had a manager uh, who took her on as a client and they were looking for a breakthrough project for her that wasn't, that was really acting, right? So I had something that was, I would say, similar um, to Pretty Woman. It was a little bit of a Pygmalion story. And, um, um, and I ended up meeting with one of the producers and then gave him two writing samples, one of which was, I just called it an untitled kidnapping script. Uh, I didn't like the last half, so I just gave him the first half. And the next day I came home and my answering machine was blinking. And I played the message back and he loved that script. Forget about Sylvia Christel. We like this script. We want to pay you to finish it. Uh, and that was basically the start of my career. So uh, also earlier on in your career, you got a, a lot of attention when you sold the script for Blind Date mostly because you didn't have an agent at the time. So yeah. uh, first, did you get any blind dates out of Blind Date? Uh, and second, tell us a little bit about where you got the idea. How did you, uh, how did you sell it? Okay, two questions there. One, uh, yeah, I had one blind date and I don't know if it was after the movie or while I was writing it. But what was funny is uh, I, I don't remember who the girl was, but I met her at Shea Lane's in Venice and there was a blackout. So the light was dim, which is kind of funny. So on a blind date, that was blind. And uh, that was while I was writing it. And so I put in the script, um, he didn't know what she looked like. This is before the internet. In the internet, you know, you can find out what your blind date looks like. You know? um, but you couldn't then. And so in the movie, uh, I, I had him go to pick her up at a hotel and the lights were flickering. Um, and um, 
he knocks on the door. She says, come in. As he opens the door, the lights go out and we can't see her. So that's that was sort of inspired by my blind date. But after that, it's um, um, probably a few blind dates. I don't know if I got <laughs> the idea of blind date uh, came from uh, there was when I lived in Venice, there was a local girl who had a birthday party uh, at a restaurant and she had invited this woman named Nina, who was a very attractive, but kind of wacky hairdresser. And um, Nina came to the restaurant with a date. Um, she's kind of flirty, even though I knew her already, she wasn't really flirting with me, but she got into trouble in the restaurant. The point where the police were called, we had to sneak her out so she wouldn't get arrested. And I remember getting a ride home from her date. Um, she was not in our car. Um, and, and her date said, well, maybe, you know, knowing I was a screenwriter, aspiring screenwriter. And he says, well, maybe you could use this as a movie. And I go, yeah, like blind date. Uh, she's gorgeous. Um, just don't get her drunk. There's something along those lines, right? And then the next day I had a meeting over at 20th Century Fox. Um, and I had had a lot of meetings back then. There was a lot of people who wanted to meet um, because Ruthless People, uh, Ruthless People's script had been circulated around town. And whereas it, it, it wasn't, um, it, it was circulated in its first circulation. It went to every studio, it was rejected by every studio. But then it got around by word of mouth because people actually enjoyed the script, which was very flattering where people wanted to read the script, not because it was their job, but because it was an enjoyable script. And so I met a lot of people that way. Um, and so one of the meetings I had was at Joe Wazan, um, who was a former president of Fox. And I gave him, a, a, it wasn't even a pitch. I said, here's an idea for a movie. Uh, she, she's gorgeous. She's got a great figure. Just don't get her drunk, blind date. And he didn't even laugh at that. He just said, do you want to do that? Do you want to make that movie? Do you want to do that? And uh, I didn't realize how much heat I had on myself as a writer that a, that a simple pitch like that could be set up. And uh, I ended up hooking up with another producer. We then pitched it to seven studios. Four studios wanted to buy it and got into a bidding war. And because it got into a bidding war, um, the amount of money that was offered was uh, a precedent in the sense that it was more money than any other unproduced writer. And uh, which was pretty good because I didn't have an agent. And this got over to the LA Times um, to an entertainment writer um, uh, named David Friendly. Uh, who is now a producer and friendly interviewed me and they took a picture of my new condo, which I bought and uh, or townhouse. And, uh, and then, so uh, then I got a lot of press on that, you know, because I had set a press and I did it without an agent. So that was kind of, it was kind of a big deal at the time. And it was yeah, something agents both <laughs> admired and resented. 
Had you tried to get, had you previously tried to get an agent? Dale? No. No. Yeah, no. Yeah, because no, I was going to no, say I'm that I think. would have been pretty, pretty unhappy if, uh, if somebody had turned you down and then. Well, somebody did turn me down. I, I won't tell you his name. He's, he's sort of a big deal. He's still an agent. And he, um, what happened with the script is, although it was rejected by every studio in town, then some people actually read it. People can make decisions. And uh, which included a, an A-list director over at Columbia and the president of the Geffen Company. The Geffen Company was the most prestigious place to make movies in Hollywood at the time. As David Geffen, you know, didn't try to make every movie that came along, but only good movies. And he had a, a, a great rep, great track record. Um, and so suddenly the script got into a bidding war between the two of them. I had already negotiated my deal, so the producers made out better. Um, so um, uh, I'm not sure why I brought that up, but I brought it up for some reason. All right, um, well, uh, I'm, I want to, before anybody else that's on this webinar forgets, um, if you guys are joining us on Zoom or on Facebook or on YouTube, please uh, ask your questions, type them into the chat or just put them into the comment stream. We're going to try to get to them, as many of them as possible. So Dale, you're, it sounds like you've had quite a few meetings uh, with studio heads and um, producers and uh, all, all manner of, of the various people that work in Hollywood. There's a perspective um, outside of Hollywood that progressive politics pervades the entertainment industry and uh, that this is a professional disadvantage for creatives who don't share that predominant progressive political viewpoint. Um, is, is, is that a thing? Is it, is it a real phenomenon or is it just kind of conservative uh, uh, paranoia? Um, yeah, what's your perspective? Um, you know, it's funny because I remember sitting down once um, and looking at, uh, this, this is over 10 years ago, and looking at uh, the movies that have been released that year. And what I considered to have either liberal themes or conservative themes. And it seemed about even. Um, if people, they tend to be more open to what I would call conservative themes. For instance, if you were to look at I Am Legend, uh, which is Will Smith playing a guy who survived a zombie attack, and zombies are running the world. By the end of the movie, though, there's something in there which suggests the existence of God. So to me, I consider that more of a conservative thing. Um, I don't know if conservatives do, but there are certainly progressives who believe in God. But, um, but if you have that in the story, that, that to me felt a little more on the conservative side. But I also find, you know, if you're trying to make a movie with a strong message, it's not gonna be that popular. And it also feels like propaganda uh, on either way, on either side, you know. Um, there are subtle ways to, you know, make a point of something, but uh, sometimes it just, to me, it, it just feels awkward. Um, I mean, I, I, I have, uh, I'm just trying to think if I've ever pitched anything which would either be considered liberal or conservative. Um, 
I mean, I have one action movie with, that would probably be considered more conservative than liberal, but it seems to uh, be, uh, it seems to be attractive to both sides. You know, so, it, seem, it seems fairly apolitical. But. Yeah. Um, speaking of Hollywood, with oh, but, the, but, but, but getting back to your point, uh, studios are mostly interested in making money. So, um, not mostly. That's all they're interested in. Um, I remember once saying to a producer, "Well, I'd like to make a movie that is good and makes money." And he like, "I don't care if it's good or not. I just wanted to make money." So uh, that tends to be the attitude of, of the movie business, I find. Um, it's not, um, you know, if liberal messages made money, yeah, they would do it. Um, but you look at something like Temptation of Christ, that was a pretty conservative movie, I think, even conservative for Catholics, uh, and it made a lot of money. Um, it actually inspired some biblical movies, which did not do well. So, um, Go figure, you know, they'll try. Uh, so speaking of Hollywood, Dale, with the Harvey Weinstein sexual abuse scandal, much of the hashtag Me Too movement's focus was, was on uh, the entertainment industry. Now, to the extent that that movement encouraged people in positions of power to act more uh, professionally, that's, that's a good thing. But from your perspective, uh, what are the risks of the movement going too far, both in terms of potentially ruining uh, the reputations of innocent people or encouraging uh, women to seek out sinister motives where none may exist? You know, the answer to that question deserves probably an entire book because there's a lot of different things going on. Uh, I know uh, probably every woman I know uh, has been in a position where they have felt uncomfortable or awkward or uh, that someone's been inappropriate. Uh, and every woman I know who has said they support the Me Too, movement, Me Too movement always, always adds, but sometimes I think some of these people go too far. And sometimes there's stuff that, that's a, that situation where you could just shrug it off and it's not that big a deal. Um, I remember having a uh, drinks with uh, a group of people, uh, some entertainment writers, bright, interesting, female, uh, some are female, and there was an ex-studio president, a guy, and um, there was also another guy at the table said, um, you know, in regards to this stuff, like, I, how, do, how, do, how do men negotiate these waters anymore and it must be so difficult i said difficult you know so i turned to the ex studio president i said listen uh we've both been in this business for a while um i think it's real easy to know where the line is and not to step over the line and he says yeah i don't think i don't even worry about it i don't think about it at all it's pretty easy what is going on though i think is there are some guys who are just genuinely nerdy guys not only have no game, they have anti-game, you might say. And those are the guys, those are the guys who may actually try to um, do something inappropriate, right? Um, and do something awkward. And you, certain women will um, 
if they're strong, they'll laugh it off. They'll laugh it off and tell him, you've gone too far. Here's what you do and don't do it again. Um, and But in a way that will admonish him where his ego is not hurt. She doesn't come off like a bitch. They're friends and they're probably friends for life. Um, and then there's other awkward situations where sometimes you meet somebody um, and you can sense that they're a little prickly, right? That they're maybe overly sensitive to something. Um, again, um, in which case you shy away from, from hiring them anyways. But it's not just because of that, but because it, it could turn into something else, right? It could be something where you tell them, you know, um, there's no advancement in this job. This is a temporary job. If you get a better job, take it, okay? Use it as a stepping stone. And then later, they may insist they get a raise, right? And they want a raise. They want more money, um, uh, whether they justify it or not. But then something could get kind of weird and hinky and, you, you, you know, you, you, you may not expect it. But generally, you can kind of tell who, who's coming in and who's going to be a little odd and who is. Um, so, I uh, I, I uh, Dale, I, of course, don't want to have this interview without asking you about my cousin, Vinny. Um, okay. when, when did you come up with the idea for the screenplay? Were you happy with the movie? And who came up with the Ute line? Um, The idea was one of the very first ideas for a movie that I ever had. And it was, um, I was 19, I was backpacking through Europe. Uh, I met a couple of older women who I traveled with from uh, France to Italy. And I'm not sure if I went maybe up to uh, uh, Austria or something with them. Um, older women, they were 25, right? And uh, one was a gym teacher. And when I got back to LA, I met her fiance, uh, Fred Fenster. And Fred had uh, gone to UCLA Law School and he had just taken the bar. So I asked Fred, uh, what happens if you don't pass? Fred was like Phi Beta Kappa. He was, there's no way he wasn't gonna pass, but still I was just curious. And he says, well, if you don't pass, you take it again. And I said, what if you don't pass that? He says, you try it again. So I said, well, how many times can you take it? He says, as many times as you want. I said, well, what's the most someone has taken it, failed, and finally passed? He knew the answer to that and was 13 times. Um, and I said, wouldn't it be funny if you're like, I don't know, driving through the deep south and you're arrested for a murder you didn't commit and the only lawyer you can use is that guy. And uh, <clears throat> then I became a film major soon after that. And that was just one of many ideas that sort of been percolating. And uh, at one point I had a deal with 20th Century Fox and I pitched them the story. There wasn't much more to it than that. Um, <coughs> I think what I added to it was at the time, Sam Kinison was a popular comedian Sam Kinison was known as the screamer. He was also somebody that was exceptionally adept at dealing with hecklers. And he was brutal 
with hecklers so brutal he was hilarious right and i thought wouldn't that be great uh for this movie with the lawyer if in fact he was a little like sam kinnison to get someone on the stand and doesn't just prove that they're wrong but just devastates them and that scene actually became the grit scene um where he said, uh, do the laws of physics cease to exist on your stove? Where did you get these grits from the guy who sold Jack his magic beans? Well, you know, so, and, and so he humiliated him, right? And you can't do that with every single one, but that was actually sort of the first scene in my mind. Um, and uh, uh, so that's where the movie came from. Uh, next, what was the next question? Are you pleased with how it came out? No. Um, there were certain changes that were made. Um, at first, uh, I, I, Vinny was supposed to be a six foot four ex boxer. Uh, at one time, he was a bag man for the mob. Uh, oddly enough, and I don't know if I should reveal this, I believe Joe Pesci was a bag man for the mob. Uh, I remember him either. I don't know if he told me or someone else. He says, boy, you're on top of the world. You know, you got a, a fucking gun in your pocket and a shoebox full of cash, you know? And um, um, so Joe, to me, is not six foot four. But, um, and so the guy had to, had to play kind of a tough guy. And nobody had seen Joe play a tough guy. But after he was cast, then Goodfellas came out and he was a scary guy. And so I figured, okay, he'll work. Uh, but the studio, you know, wanted Danny DeVito in the movie. And it's like, for the part who was a guy who was a heavyweight boxer, Danny DeVito, you know, uh, it seemed odd. Uh, Danny was briefly attached uh, and then he dropped out. Um, uh, Jim Belushi was Jim Belushi was cast to do a movie, um, A League of Their Own. Um, but for some reason, the movie didn't go. They had to pay or play him, which means if he took out time in his schedule to shoot the movie and they didn't make the movie, they still have to pay him. And he was getting two million bucks. And rather than two million bucks, they gave him my cousin Vinny. Do you want to do this instead? And he said, no, uh, I'd rather take the two million bucks, you know, which I think was a mistake to his career. Um, uh, was I happy with it? Um, I was probably happier with it than I was with my other movies. Uh, but when I first saw it, uh, I thought it was unreleasable uh, in, the, in the rough cut. And uh, it's also a movie that starts out slow and then but the last half picks up. And then I watched the last half. It was kind of, okay, this is not, it's not a disaster. Um, so there was some things I would have changed. Uh, some of it was just tone. Um, there was a few things, a few minor changes to the script. What I wanted in this movie, and it was important to me, that there was uh, no actual antagonist there's no real bad guy in the movie. Um, everybody has a certain point of view in it. So both the judge um, 
has a little chip on his shoulder about how Southerners are viewed by Northerners. This is what I found when I did research for the movie in the South. So I put that in the script and, um, and that worked out well. And so he was tough on Vinny, but not to be a jerk, right? Except there was one scene which the director put in there where Vinny starts talking in language that it sounds like he's repeating something he read in a book. Um, and it was an objection. And then he had the judge say that was a lucid, well thought out argument, overruled. Why would he do that? You know, that made the judge kind of a jerk. And there were some lawyers that would say that uh, Vinny could go back, had he lost the case, he could appeal it just on that alone. Um, some say maybe, maybe or maybe not, but, uh, but I, that, that scene I, I wish was not in there because it makes the judge look like a jerk. I didn't want the judge to look like a jerk. I wanted the judge to have a specific point of view where he was going to be tough on it. Okay. Um, so, the, the prosecutor uh, was supposed to be, um, it's not uncommon for prosecutors and defense to know each other and even be friends. Um, so, you know, that I wanted to make the prosecutor a, not a bad guy. And so that by and large, the movies played out. So we've talked in the past about movies um, that get completely rewritten and turned around. Um, and we talked about this actually with regards to Ayn Rand and the Atlas Society. We, we promote the ideas of Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand got her start in the film industry. She worked in wardrobe. She worked screening submissions. Uh, eventually she wrote screenplays, including the night of January 16th, which uh, she recounts the experience as a, a kind of a nightmare um, after the studio ended up turning the script on its head. The heroes became villains. The villains became heroes. Uh, that experience, of course, gave, had a silver lining in that it gave her the idea of uh, Howard Rourke, a creative um, visionary architect who, who would not compromise his uh, integrity. Um, was that experience that of, of Vine Rand at that time, how much of it was really a product of the times of the studio system and, and how much of it actually is something that is a, uh, a, a constant within the entertainment industry? Well, at the time, especially, they had uh, each studio had a writer's building where writers would go to the studio and sit at typewriters and write. And it was not uncommon to put a lot of writers on one project where you might have a book, you give it to one writer, they do an adaptation, they go, I don't know. They give the book to another writer who writes another adaptation. And maybe they give them the screenplay and say, here's what we like, we don't like. Um, and they kept switching writers. The amount of writers on a project, you really wouldn't know. It depends on what studio. Um, you know, it depends on how they can. Uh... Sorry, it's my sister. Lori, can I call you back? I'm doing a podcast. Bye. Forgot I even had that phone. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Um, um, so uh, the Writers Guild ended up coming up with a arbitration process to try to 
determine which writer should get credit or shouldn't get credit. And so they would actually give it to a group of writers to determine how many people can get credit. And then there was something called a writer's credit determination manual, which gave them guidelines as to who does and doesn't deserve credit on a particular movie. Um, what you started to find uh, is the fewer the writers, uh, the better the project. Um, so um, back then, you know, uh, the golden age of Hollywood, you'll find that most of the movies were not good. And I think largely because there's too many people involved uh, and it did not have a singular vision. And uh, it, every movie was like that, almost every movie. Um, and so the occasional few that got through that were good usually had uh, one writer on them. Um, so uh, her experience was common. And there was a lot of people, a lot of writers, it was very frustrating. Uh, a lot of uh, really good novelists came out to try their hand in Hollywood, you know, and, you know, and, and it's humiliating to write something and have it taken away and given to another writer. Um, I've certainly had that experience and it's very frustrating. So uh, Roman De Caesar from YouTube asks a question, which I think I'm going to answer. He says, why are you talking about entertainment when there is a need to discuss the application of Ein's founding principles in today's current darkness? Uh, because Roman, that's what we're gonna be talking about next week. And that's what we talked about last week. So we, we don't necessarily have to uh, talk about objectivism in every single webinar that we have, particularly when we've got an opportunity to talk to an artist who is actually uh, in the field. And, um, and he is going to share some of his thoughts on Ayn Rand. Um, we also have another question here from Scott Schiff. Uh, has Judd Apatow ever acknowledged being influenced by you, Dale? Uh, your styles seem similar. He came later. Um, no, no, not, not to my knowledge. Okay. But uh, um, thank you. He, he, he's done some good work. Uh, Vicki uh, has a question. She says uh, she just came across a YouTube video where a lawyer reacts to law scenes in movies and he was reacting to uh, my cousin Viz Vinny, his favorite legal movie. Um, he explains the legal scenes and whether they are accurate and what the movie gets right. Uh, and he's, and it, it's gotten 3 million views. He gave your movie an A. Have you uh, seen that? And if not, maybe we can uh, put it into the comment section here. Uh, I don't think I've seen that. Um, there is a plethora of articles along those lines. Uh, a few years ago, um, Vinny was um, considered I think the most popular movie lawyer. Uh, one of the things that, that made Vinny a very attractive, um, and as I was writing it, and before I sat down to write it, uh, I would have uh, brunch uh, with uh, Doug Knoll, who was an old friend from high school. Uh, Doug uh, was a litigator and, and is, is now a former uh, deputy attorney general of California. A, a state prosecutor. So he's, he's been on both sides in court. And so I would ask him all these questions. 
and uh, I wanted to be accurate. And, and what I found out is that in court procedure, um, there is no class in law school that teaches court procedure. It doesn't exist. So I said, well, where are you supposed to learn it? And he says, you either go to court and watch or the firm that hires you teaches you. So I said, so if then he goes in, he has no clue as to what he's doing. Is that right? And he laughed said, no. I said, well, there's, there's my movie, you know, because this is going to be trial, trial and error, right? And uh, so uh, essentially every, every mistake you can make, he makes. But what you're supposed to understand about Vinny is that there is still an underlying and intrinsic intelligence to him, which is the most important thing in law. And so the other stuff is sort of minor stuff. So you can see in the movie, you know, he kind of screws up left and right. But when it comes to the actual case itself, even though he's a guy who sounds like he's from the wrong side of the tracks, he gets it. And, um, you know, and, and puts up a good fight, puts up a very good conventional fight. And then he finds uh, by interpreting the evidence uh, in a specific way, he can exonerate the kids. Um, so um, as a result, the movie is uh, shown, routinely shown in law schools, uh, has been mentioned in a number of legal decisions, uh, one by our new attorney general, actually, Merrick Garland. Um, it has been, uh, there is a, a judge out in South Carolina, Judge Joe Anderson with the U.S. Court, and uh, who wrote an article for Voir Dire, or as they say in the South, Voir Dire magazine, uh, 10 Things Any Attorney Can Learn from Vincent LaGuardia Gambini. And it's a rather exhaustive article. And it was so much fun to read the article because um, he understood like every step of the way what was going on in my mind as I was writing it. So, um, so what was fun uh, writing the movie and what makes the movie entertaining is also what makes the movie um, authentic and, um, and a kind of a form of edutainment. Mm -hmm. Well, which is what what we do at uh, at the Atlas Society, and I, I that yeah. point that you mentioned about the authenticity resonates with me because our animated videos are are not perfect, and I I get nervous about them becoming too perfect because you know they're uh, people want to see an immediacy, they want to see um, you know a certain amount of imperfection to feel that it's real, and that they're not necessarily being completely. Um, manipulated. So, uh, so we had a previous guest on this webinar, um, a mutual friend of ours, Michael Walsh, met Michael at one of the regular gatherings uh, who uh, that you used to host at Yamashiro, which is a landmark Japanese restaurant in Hollywood. And uh, Dale, those um, those parties were not your average LA scene, and you went out of your way to curate guests who were smart, social, and yet they had a diversity of uh, political views. COVID restrictions aside, would it be possible to host that kind of gathering in these more 
politically polarized times. Uh, I think you could if it, it has to be, uh, the guest list has to be curated, you know, that there are some people politically who are so angry and so tenacious um, and will not give up on a particular argument or something. Um, and it's, it's you, you need to have some wiggle room in people who are going to be decent to each other and have an opinion, you know. I mean, I've... I've told people, you know, uh, about these parties and some of the people, and I said, I knew Andrew Breitbart. And what they were surprised to learn, uh, I said, if you know anybody who actually knew Andrew, you would describe as an exceptionally warm, kind man. And they would always be surprised um, because he came off like a bit of a bomb thrower and a provocateur uh, when he was doing, uh, when he became a little bit of an, uh, an on-air personality. Right, Um, and of course, our mutual friend Ann Coulter was a a frequent guest whenever she- Yeah, well, she's she's tougher, but she actually can be very charming and fun in a social situation if if she's not talking politics. What is interesting about Ann, though, uh, I would say is she is open for an argument. So you gotta pick and choose, but uh, you, you can just weigh in there real aggressively and she enjoys it. Um, so, um, yeah, it's interesting. That, those parties actually were started by Scott Coffer. And then, uh, and that was the Amashiro. Then he shut it down. Then I started doing them at my house. So, um, but it was fun having an eclectic group. Um, and people never knew who they were going to meet. Um, mostly just try to invite interesting people. Um, if I do like a formal dinner party, uh, I try to keep a good mix in there. I remember one time uh, Walter Kern and his wife Amanda uh, Fortini came and and he, he just had the greatest time in his life. And he says, this is the kind of dinner parties you see in like old movies, you know, where there's a judge there, you know, maybe the mayor, right? And he's getting drunk or something like that. So... I say, I think that might've been the inspiration, like those old timey movies. They would have just a mix of people and it was fun. So one of the other things uh, you and I share in common, in addition, we love to host and we love to uh, entertain, but uh, we've also both been formal hosts um, on Airbnb. Are you still doing that? And uh, what are some of the craziest, best, worst experiences you've had as a host? Uh, best experiences, you meet people you actually become friends with. Yep, um, hire, in, in my case, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, yeah. No, I've had people who have you know, sent me wine and champagne and they had a great experience. Um, there was a woman who came out here to visit uh, her son and rather than live with the son who was within walking distance, um, she rented out my place for a couple of weeks. Now the son and his wife just bought my place next door. Um, you know, largely because they came over and they liked the street and they liked the neighborhood. And then when the house went up for sale, they saw an opportunity to buy. So they did. Uh, my worst experience was really bad. Um, I had this uh, Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. house. Frank Lloyd Wright Jr., also known as Lloyd Wright. 
was an architectural masterpiece known as the Samuel Navarro House. You can go online and see it. It's a beautiful house. Um, and I thought this would be great to have on like a, a temporary rental. Uh, people who've got money and taste, you get to live, you know, for, I don't know, a week in, in, in a magnificent house that's an architectural landmark. How much fun that would be. Um, it turns out the amount of people who could afford it and the amount of people of those who could afford it and had taste, it was, it was too small a market. Uh, the worst experience were uh, some uh, kids uh, rented the place, apparently. Uh, I didn't meet them. My assistant at the time met them. Thought that they were kind of young. There was not supposed to be any parties. They had a big party. And not just a party. To say they trashed the place would be an understatement. Uh, they stole a bunch of stuff stole a couple subwoofers, they stole a laptop, um, they broke things you didn't have to break. Uh, there was graffiti on some of the artwork. Oh God. <laughs> graffiti on some of the walls, um, trash everywhere, didn't even flush the toilets. I was like, come on, Jesus, gross. So it, it was a, a mess. And, uh, and they stole the, uh, some very nice um, towels. And I thought they stole the, uh, uh, all the bathrobes, but I found out that, that they were put someplace. So then I had a ton. I had, I, had, I, I had three days to get it together for somebody else who was coming out to rent the place. Um, and so uh, we were out there for three days, uh, fixing windows. Uh, oh, there was just fixing things and replacing things. It was a lot of work, but it so was we, really uh, hard. We've got about seven more minutes, maybe time for one or two more questions. Uh, we've got a question from Vicki asking, did you watch the Golden Globes? What do you think is the future of these ceremonies um, and how have they changed over time? So that's a lot of questions. Didn't watch the Golden Globes. Uh, I, the Golden Globes, I, I don't know why anybody bothers. There's only a handful of people who vote for them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they're uh, entertainment writers. They're not necessarily critics. So to me, it's kind of a joke. Uh, why it's become kind of a big deal is only because if people will watch it, they can sell advertising. That's it. Uh, the fun part is that the hosts don't take it too seriously. Um, so it can possibly be fun and funny. Um, but yeah, I don't particularly like to watch those shows. So, so uh, of course, you've attended many of these uh, ceremonies in person. Um, and Never. No? Like, <laughs> no. Not, not, uh, the, not the Oscars? Not the Oscars. No, I'm in the Academy. I've never been to the Oscars. All right. Um, well, so you have the large because I hear uh, you wait and wait. And there's hours of waiting, and it's like I don't like to wait so long. I think if I'm nominated, I'll go. So, something to look uh, forward to. Something to look forward yeah. to. And, we, and we've got yeah. a lot, lot of things to to look forward to. You've gotten uh, your both of your vaccines. You're you're starting to. Um, 
to circulate, get out again. Uh, the lockdowns uh, have been difficult for, um, for most of us. And for someone as social as you, I would think that they uh, would have been particularly challenging. But uh, did you find any silver linings, any, any creative projects that you took on this, this past I'm a year? writer. I'm a writer. Yeah. So socially, you know, di social distancing home. comes easily, naturally. Yeah, I mean, I just work at home. I think this is an opportunity to write some more scripts. So uh, I started one script, which I really like, and it's really fun. I wish I could tell you, but I don't want the idea to get out there and stolen. Uh, I've been working on Ruthless People as a musical, though I started 15 years ago. We now have uh, a certified Broadway director attached uh, who wants to be involved in the development. So working on that. Um, I had a friend who told me, you've got to turn my cousin Vinny into a stage play. So I did have an idea long ago where for the stage play, um, we would see how Vinny and Lisa actually met. Uh, we could see how they fell in love. You see what chemistry there was there. We can see that there was a falling out where she basically told him, I, I'm, I'm not going to be, this is not going to work. Uh, you don't have any future. You don't know what you want to do with yourself. You're 30 years old. And uh, he fights a ticket. And this is actually in the movie. Uh, and he does it so well that the judge tells him that was really well done. You should consider being a litigator. Um, so then he goes back to Lisa and says, um, I'm going to be a lawyer. And she says, you're going to be a lawyer? What do you mean? Yeah, you know, you got to go to law school. He says, yeah, I know. You're going to go to law school? He says, yeah. What law school? I don't know, but I'm going to go. And she says, I'm not getting back together with you because you say you're going to go to law school. You know? And so he says, okay, I get into law school. Yeah. Are we back on? Well, I'm not going to marry you. You know, I mean, you could drop out. So it's a negotiation, right? A little bit of an argument. But by the end of it, she says, you get through law school, you, you pass, you take the bar and you pass. And then you win your first case, you know? And it's actually a very, very sweet moment where she realizes Vinny is a very, very disciplined guy. And she realizes uh, she's going to have her cake and eat it too, because she has a lot of fun with Vinny. She didn't take him that seriously because he didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. And she realized she's going to marry a lawyer. And then we cut to 10 years later, which I wow. think is kind of. Uh, so, that's uh, that's going to be it. Yeah. That's going to be a really fun project. So I'm looking forward yeah. to that. So I, I pretty much just finished that yesterday. It also the first act works really well if I were to remake the movie too. Right. Um, so it's a fun setup. Good. So, uh, well, maybe uh, some of the things, maybe some of the I'm things sorry. that you, you can't tell on this live webinar, um, you'll, you'll tell me when we next get together. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully soon, because you know. Yeah, there's a great, uh, one of the things that I wrote and adapted, uh, although I started before the pandemic, but I, I tweaked it up and turned it into a pilot TV show. 
um, which again, I can't reveal to you, uh, I'll reveal to you privately, but it's a great uh, romance story. So romantic story. All right, Dale, well, thank you so much. I, uh, I really appreciate your, your doing this, doing something totally different, um, speaking with the Atlas Society and giving us an opportunity to also do something uh, different. We talk a lot about aesthetics. We talk about uh, the, the philosophy of art, but, but we, don't, uh, we don't frequently enough get to talk to, to artists like yourself. So we really appreciate it. Um, thank you, Dale. Great, thank you. And thanks all Take of care. you who joined us on YouTube, on Facebook and uh, on Zoom. Um, if you like these webinars, if you uh, are enjoying the work of the Atlas Society, please consider uh, supporting us with a tax deductible donation. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. You are going to get your triple dose of objectivism. Uh, we're going to have Stephen Hicks, uh, his fellow Atlas Society senior scholar, Richard Salzman, and of course, our founder, David Kelly, on to talk about current events. So we'll see you then. Thanks, everybody. Bye.